0: American Exception. I'm Aaron Good, and today we are talking with Dr. Piers Robinson and Kevin Ryan about the newly launched International Center for 9-11 Justice. Kevin Ryan was previously the site manager for the Environmental Testing Division of Underwriters Laboratories. In 2004, he was fired for publicly questioning and commenting on UL's testing of World Trade Center construction materials and UL's involvement in the World Trade Center investigation being conducted by the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Since 2006, Kevin has been the co-editor of the Journal of 9-11 Studies and a founding member of several action groups. He's also served as a board director at Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth and has co-authored several books and numerous peer-reviewed scientific articles on the subject. Pierce Robinson is the founding editor of Propaganda in Focus, He is also the co-director of the Organization for Propaganda Studies, convener of the Working Group on Syria, Propaganda, and Media, and associated researcher with the Working Group on Propaganda and the 9-11 Global War on Terror. He's also a member of PANDA and Berlin Group 21. As I said at the beginning, we're discussing the newly launched International Center for 9-11 Justice and why 9-11 is still so important more than two decades later.
1: Pierce Robinson. Pierce it's Robinson. great to have it's you back, have on, you the back the show. on the
2: show. Good to be with you.
0: And Kevin Ryan, we've met in the met past, in the but past, this is the first, first time you've been, been on American Exception, Exception so, so it's great to have, you, great here to as have well.
3: you here as well. Yeah, thanks. It's great to be here. Uh, Kevin, uh, I think Kevin, I'm going to start with you. Could you tell me about...
0: Uh, uh, how you came uh, how you to be, came to be uh, and, I and my and listeners, I, and my how, you listeners how you came to be involved in, involved in, in the, issue the issue of nine eleven truth, nine eleven justice, and about this new initiative, this new that, initiative that you've launched. I, I know these are both, both kind of serious questions. questions, so maybe you could take so the first one first. How did you become involved in critiquing nine eleven and the official story of nine eleven?
3: Well, twenty years ago, the U.S. invaded Iraq. Uh, based on a, uh, really a pack of lies, and it was pretty transparent to some people, including myself, that that was the case. So I began asking at that at that time, you know, when did this kind of lying start? And and so it led me to to find that there were a lot of people asking questions about September 11th, um, and at the same time, I recalled that. Uh, where I was working, it was a company called Underwriters Laboratories, and I was running their environmental testing division in South Bend, Indiana, and the CEO had arrived there two weeks after 9-11 and told us in, in kind of a boastful manner how, uh, how the company had ensured the fire resistance of the steel components used to build the World Trade Center. So he meant the World Trade Center towers, and of course that work was done in the 60s, when I was just a child, but it it occurred to me as I began to see these questions being asked about how the buildings fell, that this was a story of fire resistance officially. And so I began asking questions at, at Underwriters Laboratories about this and I spent a year doing that. So I was uh, asking a lot of questions at Underwriters Laboratories and they were asking me to wait until the official report from the National Institute of Standards and Technology came out which my company was helping to create through additional testing investigational testing and you know when that came out it 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 didn't answer my questions it it caused more questions and so you know, I wrote to one of the NIST investigators despite the fact that I was not really part of the investigation and and uh, I copied a, a a man named David Ray Griffin who is a well known 9-11 researcher. He asked if I could get, uh, if he could, uh, allow the, the, the message to be, uh, shared publicly. And I agreed to that. And that led to my being fired from underwriters laboratories. And, uh, and then that increased my interest in finding out more. I spent a long time doing research into 9-11. So now I've been working at it for approximately 20 years. And, uh, And the more I learn, the more I ask myself, do I want to know more? And uh, it turns out I do, for the most part. I hope others do as well. So uh, that's where we're at with uh, my story. And then the new organization is called the International Center for 9-11 Justice. And I was asked by some friends and colleagues, including Graham McQueen, the late late and great uh, professor uh, who's done a lot of great 9-11 research, if... uh, if I would join him and, and a number of others, David Chandler, Ted Walter, James Gorley, uh, Elizabeth Woodworth, uh, if I would join them on the board of that organization. And the new organization is, is intended to bring together the best research that's been done over the years, including the Journal of 9-11 Studies, where I've been a, an editor for 17 years. and uh, the. Uh, 9-11 consensus panel findings, something that David Wright Griffin and Elizabeth Woodworth put together. And then finally also the Toronto hearings uh, presentations, which uh, uh, many people know were uh, given on the 10th anniversary of 9-11, and I was involved with that as well. So our, our goal is to archive and, and, and communicate some of this best research of the past and then move forward learning new things about 9-11 and and publishing them at the journal and, uh, and and engaging in, in positive, useful action going forward. So that's, that's the basis of the new organization.
0: Very good. Um, Pierce, can you give us a, a rundown on your own involvement with this issue over the years? Because this isn't the first, um, venture that you've been involved in uh dealing with 911 uh and you're an academic but so this is a radioactive issue and you've uh taken a lot of flack for this and for other causes you've taken up or investigations you've taken up how did you what's your history uh related to 911 justice and disclosure uh over the years and 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 what's your role at this new uh this this new endeavor
2: well, I, I'm a very late arrival to, to 9-11 in the sense that um, you know, my background is international politics and communications and you know, my PhD work was on things such as the CNN effect and media-driven interve- intervention in Somalia, et cetera. Um, and uh, you know, what my work was based upon that, but by the time of 9-11 and then Iraq, uh, f- research focus went on to looking at media coverage of that war. Um, which took up a lot of my time and kept me very busy for a long time. So there's no questions about 9-11, about um, questioning anything beyond, uh, you know, could it be blowback, um, stroke, this idea that the response to the global war on terror is clearly not a productive one. If they're claiming to deal with Islamic fundamentalist terrorism. And it, you know, I got tied up in a long time on a big research project on the Iraq war, and at the end of that research project, which is, a, which is a fairly sort of standard analysis of media representation and reporting, et cetera. And, and I was very aware of the, the, the issues over the de- deception and the weapons of mass destruction. And as soon as I would sort of wrapped up that project, finished the book, I went straight into looking at the intelligence and all the information which was coming out in the British context and in the American context. And I actually spent quite a few years going through material that had come out through the Chilcot Inquiry. Actually, no, this is before the Chilcot Inquiry, come out through the Hutton Inquiry um, and various other inquiries that had occurred. And, you know, spent quite a long time with a colleague, Eric Herring, producing a paper which analysed the, essentially, the deception that went on over the intelligence. And working on that, I, I learned about propaganda in a way that I hadn't understood it before. So, you know, I'd focus on looking at media and media reporting, but not really looking at this kind of question of how information was being shaped before it gets to the media, Um, which is actually the case with many even critical political communication scholars. They tend to stay focused on the media and the media output and not necessarily looking at the machinery of propaganda. But I learned about that in, in a big way, looking at the intelligence manipulation in Iraq to Iraq got that out of the way and and I think it was it was the Chilcot inquiry which really I think that in tandem about 2015 I think I saw a presentation by Susan Lindauer who was claimed to be a, a CIA linked uh, whistleblower and then I came across 9 eleven's work and actually for the first time looked at <laughs> You know, the scientific factual issues surrounding what happened. And it took me a couple of weeks to realize that clearly the official story was badly wrong. And that was about 2016. So at that point, I started to think what are the ways I can, as, as an academic, <laughs> try to introduce, as you put it, a completely radioactive issue? You know, if, if, you, if, if you talk about this, you'll be labeled as a conspiracy theorist and, and, and so on and so forth. Um, And I did, I think I started talking to people such as Richard Gage and and other people in the 9-11 movement and regular-ish phone calls on one of the the meetings that should set up with European people interested in this issue. Um, And I was very aware when I became a full professor at Sheffield that, wow, this is going to be a, you know, I'm going to have to tackle this issue because it's actually right on my subject area. I do communications and international politics and, you know, A lot of my work and a lot of the work of all my colleagues in the field is completely based upon one assumption about what happened on 9-11. So I thought, I have to tackle this somehow. Um, And so I I started to, and then I think I sort of went public effectively. So when I agreed to write, um, not the forward, but the the blurb, of David Ray Griffin and Elizabeth Woodworth's book, I think it was the consensus panel. I think that was it. Um, And became more involved then and then set up the 9-11 working group um, with interested academics. And the idea was to try and get some sort of social science work going, looking at 9-11 and also trying to get our colleagues, especially in political science and international politics, to actually start to recognize that there was a problem with the official story. Um, And and that was, you know, we were somewhat sidetracked by COVID-19, I seem to remember. Um, you know we had various projects set up we did do a webinar series um, but by that time I'd left Sheffield University and sort of effectively become independent or working through my organization for propaganda studies um, but even there w- there was still this issue of you know when do we really confront ni- the nine eleven? because you know for many academics many people who I work with you know in other areas Syria for example it's a very difficult area for them to come to terms with having to uh, research and so on. So I've been sort of trying to push myself into and, and, and get sort of get going on work. And so so that's my background. I'm, I'm a late arrival. Um, I figured it out late. Um, but my only excuse is that it's because I'm an international relations background and we, we are well disciplined by the machinery of academia not not to look at this area. But I, you know, I'm determined to now and, you know, I was very honoured to be asked by Ted Walter to come onto the board of, of this organisation. I think the time is right for to make some real progress, and and I would like, and you know, in the forms of time, just to do some of my own work from my own angle on on 9/11 and its relation to, ship to the broader global war on terror. And and I think you know, the 9/11 Center is, is is a great sort of you know place to be in order to try and develop that. Um, but I, you know, and I, I do think that we are at a point where I think there is an opening now. More people are asking these questions, so there's an opportunity not just to break open academia, which perhaps is the perhaps it's the least important thing to do, but also for justice and also for people like Matt Campbell and all the people very directly affected by this, um, and also the wars as well. We're you know you're you know. I, Share same concerns about where we are now with Ukraine, Russia, potentially China. This is military-industrial complex on steroids, or refusing to die. <laughs> and yeah, it's a dangerous time. Um, so we need to try and get these important foundational truths <laughs> or myths unpacked, um, possibly as a way of averting worse conflict. Um, or just continued conflict, right? Maybe just a grinding, perpetual war. Um, so, for all those reasons, I, you know, and I, and I hope that through the center that that kind of awakening and that kind of work can can be effectively done. So that's me.
0: Mm. Right, IR is. Um, I'm not. I'm not that familiar with the differences between British and American IR. I. My understanding is that there's. It, The British are like maybe two or three percent more open minded than the the USIR, which is absolutely ridiculous as a discipline. That was one of my sub sub subfields for my doctoral work. So I had to become well versed in it. And um, it was that was a little painful, but it's good to know the epistemology, you know, in and out because it is then you understand how nonsensical it all is. Uh, So at least there's that. But I understand that it must have been. Uh, a shock to your IR colleagues if you were started talking about this, because um, it's the, the funny thing is that they're realists, so they're supposed to have this idea of like, yep, brutal, hard statesmanship, no, no, no concern for morality, and yet they are so studiously blind about how that gets applied in their own countries.
2: Well, some of them are realists, but a lot of them are liberals.
0: Yeah, this is this is and true. The realists are it's kind of a minority.
2: Yeah, and and then uh, and. One of the problems is some of the critical voices are postmodernists. <laughs> and oh, their God. brain is, you know, well, who, who knows what the truth of 9 11 is? You can never, never know the truth. So you have that kind of problem. I mean, I, I, I want to be reasonably careful. But, you know, I, I was, you know, I helped set up Richard Jackson's uh, Critical Terrorism Studies journal. Um, and so on and you know i did have some conversations with him about four years ago about nine eleven, and and found i couldn't g- gain any traction with him at all um so you know and of course critical terrorism studies was supposed to be representing the people asking the tough questions about the global war on terror um and i will reengage with richard at some point um uh over 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 this issue and critical studies on terrorism and and one or two other things such as my removal from the board following the Times attack in 2020. I'm not saying that's what caused it, but um, uh, I was removed from the board without uh, any option um, after the Times attacked me once again for raising questions about COVID.
0: Right, um, yeah, so, that's uh, you know, there, there's
2: there, there's a problem in academia to, to, of opening the mind, which right. is ironic, given that we think of academics as open-minded and they're there to think and to think critically. Well, I think that's part of the rest.
0: propaganda of the West, is that our institutions are bastions of free thinking inquiry and and where the of a marketplace of ideas in which the best ideas win. And so if an idea is on the fringe, it's because, It wasn't the it was a bad idea like that's it's a really and it's the same sort of circular logic of every civilization every power structure that gets created they always perpetuate their own reality and punish people who dissent from it so it's people don't have that don't come at it with that general you know frame of mind now on the issue of 9 11 um kevin ryan what do you think are the most uh, the, the issues that you that you would focus on as being key to realizing or, or for people to come to the conclusion that this story has a lot of problems the official story of 9-11 uh, what are the what are your main what are some of the main areas you focus on in terms of like trying to explain to people why you have major problems with the official story of
3: 9-11 yes well the uh, the first um, step in that direction is to recognize that the official reports, both the, the 9-11 Commission report and the NIST reports on the World Trade Center Destruction are demonstrably false. I mean, the 9-11 Commission report is false in many ways, but as we learn more going forward, we learn that its its basis is, is largely fictional. I mean, the, the 9-11 Commission report was built on FBI and CIA cables and memoranda, right? And it was also based on torture testimony. You know, additionally, uh, the uh, executive director of the 9 Island Commission, Philip Zelikow, who's known to be a, a, a mythologist and a Bush insider, he wrote the, the outline of the report before the investigation began and uh, ultimately the report has very little to say about the day of 9/11 only chapters 1 and 9 about 90 pages out of the nearly 600 pages of the report have anything to do with what happened on 9/11 most of it is about the myth of al of al qaeda you know what to do about al qaeda but i've i've learned over the years also that there's there's even more striking issues uh for example there's this This detainee at Guantanamo Bay named Abu Zubaydah, uh, who was the first uh, prisoner captured and tortured. He was waterboarded 83 times, which just in itself, you must ask yourself, is that for gaining of information or or something else? But in any case, um, the CIA learned that he didn't really have anything to do with Al-Qaeda. The problem with that is already by that time, the 9-11 Commission Report is built almost entirely on his, or at least started with his testimony. He's the guy who identified Khalid Sheikh Mohammed as the architect of 9-11. He identified Ramzi bin al-Sheib. And then they went from there and they captured these people and they tortured these people. And um, But if you look through the report and understand that he was such a strong... Uh, uh, base of evidence for the 9-11 commission report, you wonder why in 2009, under his habeas corpus petition, his attorneys were told that the government no longer believes that he had anything to do with al-Qaeda. He was never a member of al-Qaeda and never claimed to be. And I talked to his lawyers about it and they said, yeah, this is this is open knowledge now. It's It's since then been reported in mainstream news. So this guy who never had anything to do with Al-Qaeda, if you look at all the things they said about him as the top lieutenant and all this, and identifying the, all, the, all the plotters, he couldn't, could not have known any of that. That's just, it's, it's, it's astounding. Another astounding uh, part of the 9-11 Commission Report is that, you know, they gave us over the years at least four different explanations for how the air defenses failed. You know, we began with, uh, you know, we didn't uh, scramble any jets. And then, and then NORAD people started saying, yes, we did. We were notified by FAA. We have documented evidence that we were notified. They gave this testimony in, in U.S. Senate hearings. For example, the NORAD commander, Ralph Everhart, stated in a U.S. Senate hearing that they had documented evidence that FAA notified them. They scrambled it, uh, jets. And... uh and for multiple multiple flights, in the end, though the 9/11 Commission report, just astoundingly, states that for years, for three years, everybody in the U.S. military was lying or mistaken about the air defense response. Now, to me, that's just unbelievable that people don't recognize that the official report, given the story of 9/11, is that everyone, hundreds of people interviewed. They wrote books about it, about the planes being tracked, about you know the jets being scrambled, but all of that, according to the 9 9-11 commission report, was false because they said there was no notification for flight one seventy five, or flight ninety three, or flight seventy seven, which contradicts everything that was said before. So these are just two uh, examples. Um, You know, the Joint 9-11 Inquiry came up with uh, this, uh, finally uh, released these 28 missing pages. You may recall a few years ago they released the 28 missing pages. This was the original investigation that was just based on intelligence failures run by the Congress. And what came out of that was was interesting, even though some of it was already known. There was a lot about uh, the... Omar al-Bayomi and, and uh, Osama Basnan; these guys that were kind of helping the hijackers in San Diego. Um, but what people may not have noticed is that these guys were working with the Saudi Arabian Cultural Mission. And why that's important to me is the Saudi Arabian Cultural Mission, which was being run by Prince Bandar at, the same, at, at that time. People called him Bandar Bush because he was such so close to the Bush family. He was the ambassador to the United States. So the Saudi Arabian cultural mission had their offices in the Watergate Hotel. And a, and a very interesting company called Stratisek held their company meetings in those exact offices as they were leased by Saudi Arabia, which leads to these characters who ran this security company called Stratisek. And one guy's name is Wart Dexter Walker, whose father was a CIA operative. And the other guys, Barry McDaniel, who was uh, uh, from BDM International, came from a, a Carlisle company group and happened to have a lot of knowledge about military ordnance because he worked in the Army in that regard. And, you know, the more you look into these guys, the more you you see they look very much like deep state operatives. And, uh, you know, Ward Dexter Walker had a history that looked very much like Ted Chackley's, uh, you know, working with the... Uh, Kuwaitis, running security companies. He was flagged for by the SEC for insider trading. The 9-11 Commission and FBI never even interviewed people who were flagged for 9-11 insider trading. So it, it just goes on and on. And, you know, after 20 years, I can tell you there's so much to, to investigate. There's so much to look into. And there's so much that just in a glaring way states that, that something happened on 9-11 that was what academics like yourself would call a structural deep event, I think. Not just for the fact of its impact, but because it's like a deep deep state operation and it, it looks more and more like that as I look into it even after all this time.
0: In the mid 90s china and russia started issuing statements about the their intention to move toward a multipolar world i mean this is sort of throwing down the gauntlet really because it's a direct contradiction of what people like paul wolfowitz have have written about in different insano national security documents and um it it, at that point throughout the 90s the us is using al-qaeda in like bosnia chechnya they try to they try to knock off uh gaddafi um and, but i think that happens in 97 but interestingly in the early months of 1996 the cia establishes its bin laden unit which is quite prescient because like i think it's like six months later bin laden announces that he's going to uh you know declare jihad against the united states you know that like he's that the u.s target should be attacked so they had the foresight to create a bin laden unit when bin laden unit uh, bin laden up to that point and al-qaeda had been like their sort of sock puppets in you know of course they the mujahideen afghanistan stuff is done in the 80s but they're using them in bosnia uh chechnya azerbaijan so kosovo and a little bit so that's and that's fascinating that this happens and then it, it, you know, you have these other documents like Brzezinski's book, the CFR study that was commissioned by them, the Grand Chess Board, where he's saying, like, the main thing we got to do is keep these barbarians from coming together. He means Russia and China, because it's a, it's a direct response to this Chinese-Russia declaration of multipolarity being essential. And then the the Project for New American Century 2000 writes the same thing. We need a new Pearl Harbor. So all these things are, they all flow together perfectly. and then al-Qaeda is like the catalyst to let them do all these things they said they wanted to do I mean uh, how does Pierce how do you even think of something like this in a because your propaganda this is propaganda but it goes beyond just like standard uh PR techniques and advertising techniques and other war propaganda this is like kind of creating a whole political reality i mean it's like that what carl rove said we're the empire now and we, we create our own reality i mean how how have you even tried to approach this from a conventional analysis of propaganda in politics
2: yeah i i'll answer that in in, in a second i mean i was just going to come in to, to, to what kevin was saying that, that for, for me sort of approaching it from the international relations point of view you know for from the beginning, I realised that the response was irrational and overblown in its own terms, that they were doing this, making excuses and so on. Um, but I think, you know, by the time the Chilcot Inquiry, because there had always been this conspiracy theory, which uh, colleagues of mine had said, that must be nonsense. And of course, it was Wesley Clark, so they're going to attack seven countries in five years. And, and I, I remember very clearly a, a conversation with a colleague who will remain nameless. And, And he said, oh, he's just making that up, and so on. And of course, when the Chilcott report came out in 2016, there's a section, I think it's it's 3.8, but don't quote me on that. And it's incredible, because it actually contains the communications between Tony Blair and George Bush in the weeks after 9-11, and they're discussing a, a global war on terror. And they're discussing hitting multiple countries. There's a line where Tony Blair says, if the priority is to get Saddam, topple Saddam, then we're better doing that with Iran, and Syria acquiescing <laughs> and so on. Um, and so you can see they're having a discussion about when to go for various countries. And of course those, you know, Iran, Syria, Iraq, not, nothing to do with the Al-Qaeda narrative, etc. And when I saw those documents, that that's when it really sort of concentrated my my mind that, well, okay, straight away, they were planning on wars. So, you know, they obviously, this was an, an event which they took advantage of, um, at the very least. Um, oh, wow. It's a fortuitous event so they could start these wars. So that really made it concrete, I think, in, ter- in evidence terms for me as an IR scholar that we've got a very big problem here and that we've got very hard evidence that, um, you know they immediately moved to to exploit 9-11 not to fight terrorism but to do a lot of other heavy lifting in the international system but in terms of and that's a very good question you raised because i mean one of the points i i made with colleagues uh, about writing about propaganda is that propaganda isn't just the pr isn't just the messaging and and what people think of normally when they think of propaganda big campaigns propaganda propaganda the deed it also involves action in the real world it involves distribution of resources to incentivize and coerce people but it also includes creating events instigating events carrying out events which can be used um, for propaganda purposes so in that sense 9 11 is itself is a primarily a propaganda event an act of terror designed to mobilize American public support war, which I think was the immediate rationale for it. Um, and that, it's, that's it's, even true
0: for the that's even true for the generic, you know, U.S. government version of it. That it was a propaganda spectacle that carried out by Bin Laden and his devious Biden minions.
2: Laden, but, but the deception in it, <laughs> the huge deception in it, is that it it was not c- carried out by the actors that the American government claims that. Um, you know, and obviously I've spent quite a long time looking at a, a lot of the evidence and material and, and yes, it's clear that it's, it's a structural deep event. It includes multiple actors from multiple states, including the US, who are involved in this, um, in, in pulling off this. But it's, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a propaganda event, but it's a deceptive propaganda event, propaganda to the deep, because um, it's a false flag. Um, they're pinning this on as it were an imagined enemy. Um, so I think in, in you know propaganda that's how to understand it but it's it's important to sort of have that idea that propaganda is not just the messaging it's also action in the real world and and actually this is a term which has you know been around for a long time propaganda of the deed is acting in the real world you don't even have to say anything well and so on you just have to take certain actions etc and this is a a very big example of that, or a very um, prominent high profile. Um, and, and then th- I suppose the other side to this is, well, how do you understand this from an IR interrelations relations point of view? Well, I mean, in a way, right. we know that false false flags are military tactics, right? you know, on a small level, and of course, you've seen this in Syria with the work I've been involved in on the alleged chemical weapons attacks and so on, which is a similar sort of going out, creating events and blaming the other side in order to shore up policy, etc. So, um, you know, in that sense, it it is a bold, it is a horrific um, act, but in, in, in a sense, in strict military, terms, it's a rational policy, or <laughs> well, it was certainly seen as a rational policy for those who, as, as you very accurately described, in the 90s were confronted with the reality that, you know, American hegemony dominance was not going to last forever, and, and I think, it is it Wolfowitz who's cited by Wesley Clark in the, uh, shortly after Gulf War I, if I remember, I, I, could, I could be remembering this slightly incorrectly. But you know the comment was you know we're going to face big competitors in the coming 20, 30 years, China, resurgent Russia, etc. Now's the opportunity to shore up our position in the international system. And what does an empire do to shore up its power? It uses all uses all the means at its disposal. Um, and they had to get the wars they had to get the wars going because that was their primary method of shoring up their position as much as they could prior to the next big uh, power um emerging on the block and, and, and he
0: said he said we got about 10 years to clean 10. up all these soviet former soviet client regimes i mean it was really you remember <laughs> it right? and look at what they, they do
2: uh, and you know they they were willing to to, to do this and and they were well, they had they felt they had to do it because there wouldn't have been the appetite for, for war, you can't. How do you mobilize people to go to war? And and I suppose the other question we offer, we get from our sort of liberal uh, scholarly colleagues is, um, you know, what why a government would never do that to its own people, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But you know, at the end of the day, governments, powerful actors, make decisions to go to war, and they know that many, many people will die in the process. Um, you know. Uh, and, why is a number of americans for example dying it's part of the collateral damage it's the dark deeds which have to be carried out in order to protect the perceived national interest um dark deeds but you know i think when i used to get invited to sort of foreign office and nato type events um you know most quite good honorable guys but you know, you always get a few conversations with Some of the more senior-looking foreign office-type characters, um, of you know, sort of yeah, we have to do nasty things in the world, and we're not going to tell the public about it, and, and so on. And yeah, there is that vein of sort of elite thinking that you know states have to carry out do horrible things which their publics won't accept, and that's the part of the Machiavellian world of international politics. And so they for reasons of state. And so, you know, it, it's when you understand all of those things, it, it doesn't become so impossible to understand um, that the worst case scenario in, in 9-11 is actually a realistic one. And frankly, when you add the, the scientific side of this with the issues, as which Kevin can talk about much more than I can about the building collapses, you, you're not really left with many options um, in terms of understanding what happened with this event.
0: Yeah, I, I have a, a question about the. I'll ask about the World Trade Center in a second, but first for my own uh, edification here, did, was it ever determined that the Shanksville definitively determined that the Shanksville crash, uh, or shoot down or whatever it was, that that was headed for the White House or or uh, or the or, or Congress or did they ever figure out where it was headed?
3: I'm not aware of them. <laughs> uh, Finalizing a conclusion about where it was headed, there was a couple of hypotheses. The White House, Camp David, I think, and uh, but there were some some stories that have been recorded in the mainstream news about the White House having been uh, alerted to a, a potential uh, plane impact, and uh, and and so people were evacuated, for example, and, and rushed to to emergency centers. But uh, no, I don't think it was ever finally. Concluded as to where Flight 93 was headed.
0: Yeah, because I, you know, I, I, I've written a bit about C. Wright Mills and the power elite, and he, he points to the, how, how even as in the 1950s, the pinnacles of the political system, Wall Street and the military were interchangeable and in that they were all dedicated to this like, you know, permanent, privately incorporated, permanent war economy and global dominance and so on. And uh, then you, you look at 9 you know the cold war ends so you have a delegitimation of this uh or, or a i don't want to say delegitimization because it's partly triumphalist but you have a loss of the real motive and excuse for having this massive bureaucracy this massive foreign policy you know imperialist set of institutions and on 9 11 he he attacks those two um pillars of the deep state i mean the, the national security the Pentagon and and Wall Street. I mean, it's like so symbolically, all the worst parts of uh, the despotism of the US internet for domestically and internationally. And then maybe the other one was coming for the third part of the power elite, which was, uh, you know, the political directorate, so Congress or the White House, and then you would have had a, a three, you know, legitimizing the three corrupt imperialist institutions spectacularly by attacking them i mean it's like bin laden must be like a social scientist or something right i mean he's so shrewd and doing it on 9 11 you know which is the like the date which corresponds to like our emergency telephone number you know so emergency emergency Uh, the state is in danger i mean as, as a propaganda thing it just i guess this is just more me commenting on this but like it's really amazing as a as a piece of propaganda um, yeah. now the other, the other, to get more to like the specific and material, uh, Kevin, what, what happens with world trade center seven? Why does this building collapse? And why are people so fixated on this all these years later? Uh, and why won't they give us the report on the, the secret computer report and animations and, and models that they use to show how this is possible?
3: All right. Well, starting with the last question, uh, Structural engineer Ron Brookman uh, submitted a FOIA request for the computer modeling that NIST did, and NIST claimed that they could not re- reveal any of the computer modeling uh, because it would jeopardize public safety, right? So the basic problem there, one of the basic problems there is the, is the results they found could not, cannot be replicated. So it's, it can't be falsified. It, it's not testable. Um, but why most people are interested in World Trade Center 7 is because it it uh, collapsed into its own pre- footprint at free-fall speed, or free-fall acceleration, basically, uh, at 5.20 in the afternoon on 9-11. And if anybody watches the uh, the, the film of the, of the uh, collapse, it looks exactly like a controlled demolition. Uh, controlled demolition uh, experts have noted that. Um, there were warnings that the building was going to come down. There were lots of sounds of explosions. Um, and, you know, the, the building housed a lot of interesting uh, uh, entities. Uh, they had a CIA office, Secret Service, DOD office, uh, Giuliani's Office of Emergency Management. But, uh, yeah, the, the problem with this building is that it just fell into its footprint basically free fall speed, and originally NIST would not admit to free fall speed, but but uh, one of our board members, David Chandler, actually uh, forced them to admit through mathematical graphical means that the building did, in fact, fall for a period of time at free fall. In fact, our one of our new papers at the Journal of 9-11 Studies at, at, at the International Center uh, website is that it it shows that there was sudden onset as well. So a sudden onset and free fall speed. So the only way that can happen is if all of the uh, columns internally and and externally were removed at the same time. And we're talking about hundreds to thousands of of fasteners, you know, all just breaking at the same time. Um, And so everything points to controlled demolition. Another interesting story about this is that several media outlets bbc's the most well known for this but cnn did it as well Is they they reported that the building had collapsed 20 minutes before it actually had and so the the reporter from bbc jane stanley she's you know if you see the clip she's talked telling us that the solomon brothers building has collapsed and you can see the building right behind her this is 20 minutes before it collapses so, you know, and I talked so the to way, the-,
0: the way that it collapsed was not a gradual thing where she could have been reporting on, you know, yeah. part of it having collapsed. But the, it was like the building is there standing and then it just goes, yeah. I, I can't, I, I find this amazing that, that this can stand. To me, this, this is just a monument to like the mind control powers of a, of an extant regime because it's astounding.
3: It really is. And, uh, you know, there's so much that could be said about World Trade Center 7, but uh, the towers as well, most people don't see this because, frankly, they don't look at the at the video. Um, but you can see when you look at the video of the towers collapsing, that they're blowing up, upward and outward, and the upper sections, which allegedly are somehow uh, crushing the bottom 90 Cold, cold steel, 90 stories of cold steel, are being crushed by something, but there's nothing there. It's actually, it's just blown up. It's and it's blowing outward and upward, and there's these demolition squibs, they call them. These just uh, high-velocity bursts of, of debris that are coming out at, at regular spacing throughout the building, um, and you know, most people uh, who look at it closely, at least. Uh, accept this hypothesis as being realistic. In fact, you know, the 9-11 victims' families who were who really responsible for having started the 9-11 truth movement, you know, many of them, the Jersey girls, for example, are very interested in this and would like to have answers to how the building's actually collapsed. Um, so, you know, we're, we're looking into that more and more. There's been a lot of work there, but, you know, some of the evidence that we've found over the years includes the presence of extremely high temperatures and molten metal which indicates the presence of what are called thermitic materials thermite is a reaction between aluminum powder and iron oxide and, it, and it's very exothermic and uh, we've found the residues of these materials in the World Trade Center dust uh, a lot of these metallic microspheres which are uh, iron rich and, and match uh, the product of, of thermitic reactions. So we've written a number of papers in mainstream journals on, on this, uh, colleagues and I. So there's just a lot, of, uh, a lot of evidence, a lot of evidence for explosions, you know, firefighters testifying to explosions in the, in the lobby of the World Trade Center. Um, and, and it just goes on and on. And uh, if you'd like to learn more about the World Trade Center evidence, the Journal of 9-11 Studies is a good place to go.
2: I was just going to jump in as, as, as a non-scientist and just say, for me, so, some of the scientific explanations which really helped me grasp fully how problematic the official story and one was the, the idea of Newton's third law and how the top section, particularly sort of the North Tower, which was hit quite quite high up, how it would be possible for the small top section of the building just to go through and enc- crush, destroy the entirety of the building below without before it has destroyed itself. It doesn't make any sense. And when you just start to think about that, okay, that's not very logical. And then I think, remind me, Kevin, the journalist, was it Burkitt? Was it Burkitt who was right at the base of the first tower which collapsed? And he's with the firefighters. And he suddenly says, there's a great explosion. We've got to get out of the way. And they really are right at the base. And he's surrounded by fire fighters, and, and they, they pan up, and you can see that the building starting to collapse at the top with the debris, as, as Kevin described, flying out. If you just take your eye down to the bottom of the tower, way, way before the, the collapse front of the right, you see a blast starting to emerge from, you know, really near the bottom of the building, which is an incredible distance. As Kevin says, there's quite a lot of these blasts. And some are, sort of seem to be just sort of say 30 stories ahead of the collapse, but that Burkitt footage is, is really quite. But you have to be looking. You have to be looking down, not up at the building coming out. And he suddenly realize, "Wow, what's this stuff coming out this like, so far down?" And so on. You, know, I, I, you know, you could probably create a variety of explanations for it. But obviously, what it looks like is it looks like detonation of some kind going on. And so when you look at it and without the kind of the narrative in your mind that these buildings just collapse because of and, and think, what is it that I'm seeing? Does it make sense to even sort of, you know, an, an untrained eye? It, it looks um, deeply problematic. But I think, I think that that, uh, that image really or the, the Court, really made me think this is. There's a very big problem with the official story um, before you get into all the very detailed sort of scientific uh, structural side of it um, it's, a, it's an amazing feat that they pulled off But in another sense when it's that big and it's that dramatic people have great difficulty even entertaining the idea in their mind I Imagine you have the same issue well with the Kennedy assassination um, although there, it's always mixed, isn't it? Because I think a lot of people on nine eleven, and I'm finding this increasingly. I was in a, 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 uh, a meeting today or a, a webinar today, and somebody said, "Oh yes, I knew all along from <laughs> the beginning." It's amazing the number of people who are coming out saying, "Yes, I, I, I realised something was wrong straight away." But I think a lot of people, you know, did realise that, and the same with JFK. But then for a lot of other people who just aren't paying quite enough attention, you just listen to the official story and it gets cemented in the mind. And you also don't want to go there. You know, it's a difficult psychological bump to get over to. And it does kind of ruin your feeling for the day and your hope for the immediate future and for your children when you realize that, you know, we always knew there was corruption but it's an awful lot worse than we thought it was. You know, I was steeped in Chomsky. I knew that governments do bad things, but it was mainly us doing bad things to people around the world. But, you know, getting over that bump that maybe governments are willing to harm their own populations and our own government, it's a difficult, difficult psychological hurdle to get over.
0: Um, It shouldn't be though. I mean, it it should be a a sober look at human history and the history, which has been a history of civilizations and empire. You don't have history without civilization, people writing things down, and you don't have civilization without some kind of imperialism, some kind of process of expansion and and dominating outside groups and and forcing them into your system or or not. So it should be it should be well understood that the primary universal characteristic of like ruling class elites is is an indifference to the humanity of of those below them in their own societies and elsewhere we shouldn't really be surprised but i think we're, we're the liberal liberal propaganda uh, mythology makes us not understand things that we should understand
3: yeah Absolutely. i agree and you know i'm a a lot of people would uh, say you know they believe in occam's razor you know the simplest answer is is the best but The fact is that Occam's razor only works if you have all the information at hand. And with the level of political literacy in in the public due to propaganda, we don't have the information at hand. We don't understand, most people don't understand what's possible and what history has been like, just as you described, Aaron. They don't really have that background. So when they see something like 9-11, it's not the first thing and it's in fact, it causes a lot of resistance in their minds because this would be the first time this kind of thing ever happened, right? It's not, of course. I mean, there's the Reichstag fire. There's, we know about Operation Northwoods as as a plan, you know, and so on. So uh, JFK, if you, if you understand that, and so on. So the next time, one of the important points of d- doing this work is not just to bring out every bit of the detail of what happened on 9-11, but to help people understand that this... This is how things do happen occasionally. And so the next time, you know, the, the media drives a fear-based story and you know, in the National Security Council is all the all the information's running through the National Security Council, right, then like with COVID, uh, then people should alert themselves. Hey, there should there should be something there might very well be something going on here. It's all fear-based, there's insider trading, there was for 9-11, there was for COVID, and and so on and so forth. There are a lot of features and outcomes that are the same every time a a kind of a a uh, fear-based population control story is brought out.
0: there are a lot of parallels between jfk and 9-11 and and, but yeah in terms of these intelligence people who appear to be intelligence assets people whose movements and activities and associations are not really understandable unless you think that they are intelligence agents i mean i think that comes through and that's been expanded on recently with the uh, all the stuff on abayami and um the other guys in San uh, Al Hasmi, and you know it, these people in San Diego, like this, the connections to Bandar Bush and so on. I mean, Bandar was a guy who, in the eighties, was used as a sock puppet to carry out deniable uh, covert operations involving Al Qaeda types. I mean, this is a guy; his involvement with these hijackers should be a red flag. I mean, then and the fact they call the guy Bandar Bush it just adds to that. I mean, there are. Uh, you know the, the the commission itself. The way that I, my understanding is that some of the staffers, when they realized that the fix was in with Zelikow and that he'd already written the report and that they were just there to flush it out, that they made like a sort of parody document where they were talking about. They compared it to the Warren Commission. They said like the Magic Bullet 2.0 and and things like that. I mean, this is uh, the 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 mo on these things is not they they don't reinvent the wheel every time i mean it's much more complex and that's the scary thing like you know operation ajax in 1953 is is nowhere near as complex as what they did to uh you know syria and the ukraine i mean they have more resources to do all these things but it's the same kind of stuff over and over again um is i guess you all have said that or pierce maybe you said that there may be a window of opportunity now. And I, I think so too. I think that there's two things working together, which ultimately are what bring down empires. You have, you know, bring down domestic regimes anywhere. You have outside forces, which are changing the circumstances that the U S finds itself in. And then you have dissident groups within who are more or less saying same similar things they've been saying for a long time, except now the corruption is more obvious to everyone. The, illusion is falling apart uh how how do you think that 9 11 and understand uh, you know at this point there's no shortage of horrible crimes that should delegitimize this entire enterprise of of u.s unipolarity this quest to rule the world Uh, how do you think that 9 11 can be a a part of this process that might lead to more uh, a more common sense prevailing in the u.s that oh my god this is actually a, a a an insane totalitarian enterprise we've been living under that disguises itself, and it's it's run its course, and we got to change it now. How can nine eleven and and people understanding nine eleven be a, a catalyst for this?
2: Well, I, I think the event itself, and the same argument goes for JFK and also for COVID, in a sense that you know the the, the crime surrounding this is so big and so significant that people will care about them. So, you know, for example, you know, obviously I've been involved with the OPCW chemical weapons issue in Syria and, and that goes on and, and and so on. But, you know, people, it's difficult to get people to care about that and so on. It's seen as something happening over there and it's quite a small thing. But, but 9-11 is, is, is such a big, major event and it's such a key event in terms of the evolution or... Of- the decline of the Western Empire. And, and you see this kind of you can trace this from you know, the warnings from Eisenhower of the military industrial complex. JFK comes in and attempt to alter course, he's assassinated. Um and then you see this you know, gradual deterioration. Well in the sixty eight
0: the, the sixty eight the twin assassinations in nineteen sixty eight are were an attempt for people to say can,
2: can we can turn
0: back. But then no, they just no, we're gonna murder everyone.
2: There's a rally of gunfire in the 60s and people being assassinated, and Martin Luther King, et cetera. Um, so I, I think 9 because of the scale and importance of it in that process, um, means that it's something which people will care about. And, and this is the criticism of Chomsky, isn't it, from some quarters, that Chomsky sort of stays silent on an issue which actually would unify left and right, as would the assassination of JFK, whether you're on the right or on the left, these things are crimes against democracy, etc. So in and of itself, as the event of what happened, I think it has a powerful mobilizing role. The other part of this, and this is all credit to, to people such as Kevin, who, who've done so much work on this, is that the JFK, also 9 are extremely well-researched now. I mean, if you think of the kind of the evidence is which is marshaled for an awful lot of mainstream IR or political science scholarship and so on, which is often very sort of theoretically orientated, not, don't care quite so much about the empirical side and so on. Or, you know, or,
0: it's, it's, or it's empirically oriented in a statistical fetishistic way that yes, is yeah, also you equally enough, useless.
2: Tells us something which is completely obvious, which you, you, you already knew. Um, I, I, I think that so the quantity of research means it is actually quite you know, this material is there now to sort of pull together, and this is what the center and is, is going to try and do to present to people. And so, well, actually, when you look at all of these things, you, you can look at the buildings, collapses, you can look at, you know, with me, you can look at the kind of the background and the documents and the interface of Saudi Arabia and the CIA and, and, and the Islamic fundamentalist groups and so on. And and I think I, I think evidence matters for people. I know that people keep talking about us being in a, in a post-truth world and, and so on, but... But I think there is a, a sense in which, over time, the stock of knowledge builds and builds, and I think that's where we are now with the Western Empire: is that, you know, we've had a good run, <laughs> um, we've dominated for a long time, and to the benefit of, you know, sort of certainly my parents' generation and so on in terms of their standards of living, etc. But that run is clearly coming to an end. Um, and, and I think you know, sort of, people can can look at these events and, and look at the evidence there, and, and I think it can really, really consolidate sort of a growing awareness that you know things are changing, and actually they need to change. Um, that you know the myth, the liberal myths we've told ourselves, aren't true, um, and that we are moving into a different world, a different kind of structures of power globally, etc and um you know part of that is learning to come to terms with all of our demons and, and the crimes which have occurred and so I, I i think these events really help yeah can help crystallize in people's mind um that things have been bad for a very long time and i know it, you can take these things really much further back. I think just a, a useful starting point at the moment is with the Eisenhower warning, because you, know, you, you, you can trace the sort of the, the decline of our democratic institutions from that point. You can see the sort of erosion of academia, the erosion of mainstream media and, and so on, accelerating accelerating to the point where we are now, where we don't have much left in terms of um, functioning democratic institutions. I, you know, I've said that many times now, but I think it's pretty obvious. I, I learned about it in academia when I found out that this was not this kind of bastion of open, free thinking, and so on. Um, same problem in the mainstream media, corporate media. So, yeah, uh, I trace so it back a little bit uh, earlier
0: to the to World War II and the most progressive administration in the U.S. in U.S. history. And they delegate the formulation of grand strategy of foreign policy to the Council on Foreign Relations, and, and who comes up with a plan for global empire. And those same people go on to create the CIA, and then they're very much connected to the oligarchy of corporate wealth, and the military-industrial complex gets created, but more as a initially as a stopgap measure uh, by by people who were not the right-wing militarist part of the establishment. It was really people like Atchison. Uh, who's connected to that, that same sort of Wall Street nexus of power. Like, they were actually the ones who said, like, well, we need a permanent war economy to handle these, the, the, the dollar balance issues and so on. And then the Korean War and NATO st- allows for all this. And that really is like, it's very, it's like that whole, the fact that the democracy of the New Deal, which represented the high point of American democracy in many ways, but that they could not, they, that, that, that that this deep oligarchic anti-democratic power was able to basically assert its will, even at that point, just shows you that democracy as it, in this system cannot really um, handle, Cannot democracy can't persist, persist in this kind of system where there's so much power. There's, there's, the constitution doesn't place any limit on private power and the private power of, of capital and industry in the US at the time of World War II was so huge that they, that they made the decision to go for war and then just manage quote unquote democracy past that. And that's been going on for decades and decades. And the democracy part of it just gets weaker and weaker uh, because it has to, because the oligarchy gets bigger and bigger in terms of its power. So it's a, this is, uh, this is a historic thing. uh, And it's more of a, it's a, it's more of a continuation of human history up to this point, unless we can change these things. I think, um, Kevin, what do you what do you think about the importance of nine eleven on this on, on these bigger these, the bigger issue of America's apparently irreversible imperial decline or collapse, however you want to describe it.
3: Well, one reason I think that nine eleven is so important is that it's the place that, as both of you stated when we started talking, it's the place you can't go, right? In, in academia, for example, it's a place you can't go, right? You can't talk about that. And it's it's one of those, ironically, one of those uh, subjects that have been limited in terms of them not being acceptable opinion. You know, that's one of Chomsky's quotes, right? To limit the range of acceptable opinion and let people, you know, have a party with everything else. But you have to limit certain subjects. And 9-11 is that, I think, the number one. Still, the number one subject that people can't go to in terms of what the actual truth might be behind those events. So that's why I think it's so important. I personally feel like it's a it's a way to reveal reveal the de, the extent of the deception in our lives. And uh, you know so that's not that's not specifically about uh, politics, but you know, there's a lot of deception in our lives, and the way we deceive ourselves and allow other people to deceive us, causes a great amount of the problems that we have. And so I'd like to see if 9-11 can help kind of uh, bring about what I call a catastrophic and catalyzing realization. If you've heard that phrase before, uh, catalo- catalyzing, catastrophic and catalyzing event is what 9-11 was for the PNAC group. And it can also be a realization of the same sort. For the rest of us, in terms of how much we deceive ourselves and how much we are deceived.
0: So, are there any other events or um, symposia or anything like that 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 the you guys have plans coming up, or or what's uh, what what are the things that are on the horizon for this new organization?
3: Yeah, you know, one thing that we're gonna uh, we're working on and will be released here in the next month or so is a film. Called Peace War 9/11, which features uh, Graham McQueen, who was our founding mem- a founding member of our organization, and a longtime peace activist, uh, started the uh, Center for Peace Studies at McMaster University and worked his whole life to try to bring her out about peace. And so he was interviewed, and they they created Ted Walter, I think was behind most of this, created a film that the center will release sometime soon and we'll be looking to have uh debuts for the film around the country and in canada so that's coming up in, likely in september
0: oh very good um where can where, where else can people follow uh your the the your work that you two uh that you two do
2: well the the, the website's ic911.org and so that's the that's the place to go, and there is. If they go to that front page, scroll down a bit. There is a there's a great trailer, excellent trailer to the uh, Graham McQueen film, which is well worth taking a look at. Um, and, and that website contains uh, you know a lot of information, a lot of the basics about why people should be questioning what's happened. Obviously, um, people can subscribe to get updates and so on. Obviously, you know the organisation, you know. Is looking for support from people, whatever they can provide, because um, to get things done, you need resources and, and so on. So, um, and and I think, as Kevin said at the start, I mean, you know, the journal for 9/11 studies is, um, in a sense, should become a, a core centrepiece of kind of scholarly side of this, you know, putting work out, developing work, etc., which is finding out new things, broadening the kind of... And what I hope is to try and get some of my colleagues, um, the braver ones, to start to think about writing about 9-11 and and obviously the journal for 9-11 is is a space for that. Um, I'm trying to think if if we have, apart from the launches for for the Graham Queen film, um, uh, we are, and Ted in particular is involved in supporting um, Matt Campbell whose brother was killed in 9-11 and they have been attempting to get uh, an inquest started again in the UK and that's being blocked by the Attorney General and they're going to pursue an appeal. Um, so that, that there's going to be activities that Ted will be involved in around that. Um, and and I think, I, I'm, you know, I can't think off the top of my head, but I, I assume that sort of developing you know, things such as webinars and so on will, will happen. Um, actually you, there was a webinar wasn't there on the first paper the first new paper out in the journal of 9-11 studies with Ted and um, David wasn't it um, yeah talking about their papers so I think you know that's a, a really good sort of thing to do with papers that should being produced and put out and so on, having discussions etc um, so that'll be going on and not, not that I'm hugely familiar with, with some of these fiercely argued over issues within the 9-11 movement, but there, there is a space on, on the website for a discussion space to try to encourage um, civilised um, debate over some of the more controversial issues, which have um, uh, sort of plagued... Well, plagued is probably a reasonable, accurate way of putting it, uh, some of the debate over 9-11 too much infighting, as it were. So I think those are the major things. Have I missed anything there, Kevin?
3: No, I think you've covered the major uh, components of what we're trying to do at the moment. And of course, we're open to uh, any suggestions for research. Uh, We're discussing research regularly in our board meetings. And there's a lot to discuss, so we can go over that maybe in another meeting sometime in the future
0: all right well um i think that i'd be interested if you guys have any other initiatives that come up in the future uh let me know and i'd be happy to give you a a platform to promote them most likely unless you go off into some crazy area that i don't imagine you'd go into i i gotta be a little reasonable here but assuming you guys stay on your (laughs) current trajectory uh i'd be happy to come back on and let you talk about these things a lot of these are a little bit out of my wheelhouse the the physics of the uh the buildings and such, I, I just can't, I don't, I can't make, I'm not in a position to evaluate any of it, but the, you know, the, the heart of it, the funniest thing is, this: like building seven, you don't, you don't have to know, you have to have about a five-year-old's understanding of, of physics and how it feels to fall down the stairs and such to, to get that something happened there that was not just, oh, fire. And then 47 floors soup. So it's really, it's really amazing. Uh, and I, I think that there's, there's got to, there, there are huge problems with this story. I don't know exactly what they are, but they're tied. I mean, I'm saying I don't know exactly what happened. They're tied to U.S. empire because it worked so perfectly with the insane plans. Well, We know what their plans were and that they were totally insane and murderous and criminal. And so we should take that knowledge of the fact that the people in charge are insane and murderous and criminal. And then I'll let, I'll let that influence our uh you know let that factor into our evaluations of these other events like right. nine eleven. 11 i right. think
3: right. right right
0: so i really appreciate you guys taking the time here any last words here pierce pierce
2: oh i i decided just you know based on my work with syria and chemical weapons and this big report which is i'm um, going to be out soon with astani and richard falk and hans von sponic um you know interdisciplinarity is important and international relations scholars probably do need to do a bit of engagement with the hard sciences and, and so on so they can get a better grasp on the issues that they're writing about, because these things interconnect. So, you know, multidisciplinary, multi-disciplinary interdisciplinary approaches are very important. So that means, um, you know, and it's, it's good to learn about other fields as well. Um, <laughs> right. the mind, Etc. But this, that's an important intellectual move for people to make, certainly in, in, in academia. So it's, they don't silo themselves, right? They kind of like say, well, I don't know anything about that, so I can't, can't possibly, etc. You know, you can, as Chomsky has said himself, you know, you can, you know, develop a, a, enough knowledge of relevant fields to sufficient depth to be able to draw upon that or draw upon other expertise when you need to in order to inform your um, analysis. And I ask scholars, need to do that pretty fast when it comes to some of the issues which the scientists and engineers have raised about buildings on 9-11. Interdisciplinarity.
0: Here, here. Well, gentlemen, uh, thank you very much for joining us today, and I hope to talk to you all in the future.
3: Thanks, Aaron. Really Thanks for having fun. us.
0: for engineering the audio and to Mock Orange for the music. I have included links to the International Center for 9-11 Justice and to Kevin's blog and Pierce's Propaganda in Focus website as well in the show notes. Except for when they wanna scare us, they would like us to forget about 9-11. And especially, they would like us to forget about all the aspects of the US regime narrative which don't add up. That's why we refuse to forget we keep
1: minding the darkness.